so great to be with you all. I'm going to get situated. Well, as it was said, my name is Ashley Foltz, and the last time I spoke on this stage, I actually had a different last name, and that is because seven months ago, I married Eric. We've got a picture. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Eric also works with crew here at Ball State, and he did speak a few weeks ago. Um, so I'd love to tell you a little bit more about myself. Uh, I was an elementary education major, so it's not that classified, um, but that's what I was. Um, I have heard that I look a bit presidential tonight, so possibly my major should have been political science. Um, but I'd love to tell you a little bit more about myself. Um, within my role with Crew, I help lead the women of Woodworth and Neuer. I also help give leadership to the, the community team and also help lead our new crew movement here at Ivy Tech in Muncie. So uh, also something very important that you must know, um, when I study the Bible, uh, there's a special term that I use and I get this term from Christian rapper Andy Minio and this term is called diggage. So this is a word that we're going to use tonight as we study God's word. So I hope you all are ready to get your diggage on. Are you ready? All right. Well, each week we've heard from different speakers who have had awesome things to say about living purposefully in light of eternity. And tonight, I have the privilege of wrapping up our talk series as we consider the question, will your life count? And so to begin our time, would you mind taking a minute and praying with me. If you feel comfortable in doing so, would you silently spend a minute and pray to the Lord and ask him to help you humbly consider this topic of making your life count. So go ahead and take a minute and silently pray for yourself. Well, Lord, we love you, we ask that your Holy Spirit would show us tonight what it means to make our lives count. It's in your son, Jesus' name we pray, amen. So to begin our time together, I want you to imagine something. I want you to picture a room, everyone see it? See the room in your mind? The room's walls are white, the carpet is a floral pattern, and there is a quiet and despairing tension in the room. Chairs are lined up in perfectly straight rows. In these chairs are people dressed in darker colors, many of them dressed in black. As you look at the chairs in the room, you see that they are occupied by your friends and family. Amid the sniffling and sobbing you hear, you see dozens of beautiful flower arrangements lining the outside of the room. And near the front of the room, there is a long, wooden, pristine box with its lid open. You notice a sign that says, in loving memory. And you look at the programs in, that each person is holding, and on it, it says your name. As you look more carefully at the box at the front of the room, you realize it. You are at your own funeral. And at that moment, person after person comes up to a microphone and speaks of the life that you lived. They share what they remember most about you. 
the things that you lived for, what motivated you to get out of bed in the morning. They share how you spent your free time, how you interacted with others. They share your passions, what drove you, and what your purpose for living was. Now, I understand this is a somewhat creepy and morbid illustration, but the reason that I'm suggesting each of you picture your own funeral is that in order to live now with purpose, we must keep the end in mind. Think about your favorite book. Surely the author knew how she wanted the story to end when she started writing. Because of this, she had purpose in each sentence that she wrote. The character she created, how she moved the plot along, how the conflict is resolved in the end, all of these are stepping stones to see this particular end for the story. Oscar Wilde, a famous, famous Irish novelist and poet said, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist, that is all. You see, we may have a heartbeat, but we're not truly living if we don't have purpose. And not just any purpose, but the right purpose. Without the right purpose in life, we are merely existing, dr simply drifting through life on autopilot. Well, by looking at some statistics of how the average American spends their time, we can get an idea of what the average American's purpose for living is. So the average American's life expectancy is about 79 years. And according to Time Magazine, the average American watches almost 15 years of TV. That's almost one-fifth of a life. Let's look at something else. TED Talks reports that the average younger person racks up 10,000 hours of video gaming by the age of 21. The Huffington Post reports that the average time that a woman spends in front of the, of the mirror is about two weeks out of the year. And lastly, the International Business Times reported that millennials take about nine selfies a week. And it takes approximately seven minutes to take each one of those selfies, you know, in order to get it just right. So that adds up to about 54 hours a year of taking selfies. And at this right rate, the average millennial could take up to 25,000 selfies in his or her lifetime. Shocking, right? Well, what about other things? The time spent on social media, checking how many likes you may have. Time spent on Snapchat. I know I see a lot of selfies in Snapchat. Time spent accumulating wealth and spending money on things that don't laugh, last. Time spent napping, although you've already had plenty of sleep. Gotcha. Time spent worrying. Time spent seeking out things that make you unique. Time spent building up your reputation. Time spent on storing up bitterness in your heart. Time spent being consumed with thoughts about the next big thing in your life. Well, you might say, well, Ashley, I don't think I'm wasting my life. I do a lot of things. I don't have time to binge on, ne on Netflix. I'm actually quite busy, in fact. 
Well, sure, you might be doing a lot of things, but I need to ask you, are you doing the right things? Are the things you're doing counting for something that will last for eternity? Pastor and author Francis Chan says, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. So tonight, I'd like to show you in God's word, so we're going to get our diggage on, what it says about being consumed by the cares of this world. So if you have a Bible, turn it to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17. So it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the beginning of this passage says, do not love the world. And why is that? It's because you cannot love the world and love God at the same time. You see, love for God pushes out love for the world, and in contrast, love for the world pushes out love for God. The two cannot exist together. It's not that all things of the world are bad, but our hearts are pulled by the things of the world as they give us false hopes of security and satisfaction. We get distracted by them, and we live our lives with the wrong purpose. The first John passage says that the world is passing away. Would you set up house in a ship that is sinking? Pastor John Piper once asked, would you buy stock in a company that you knew was going to go bankrupt? The same is true for us. Why would we spend all of our time investing in this world and for the things that are just going to pass away? Because of our broken nature, we tend to go about our days with the wrong purpose because we are consumed with the cares of the world. We're living for the here and now and not looking to the end. Pastor and author C.J. Mahaney says, the biggest challenge facing Bible-believing Christians is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. You see, the world is alluring and seductive. The things of this world could be material items, Success or worldly recognition, among many other things, all of them are fading and will one day pass away. So if we're being consumed by, so if being consumed by the cares of this world is not what our purpose should be, what should our purpose be then? Well, let's look at the First John passage again. It says, "And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God." abides forever. We can see that the true purpose of man is to do the will of God. One main reason why people tend to be over-focused on the pleasures of this world is because we believe this lie. We think that we have to choose between living a life that is satisfying or living a life that is in pursuit of God's glory and obeying him. Millions live lives that do not count because they think that these are two separate roads, but actually, it's just one road. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, 
which was a document written in the 1600s to teach Christians basic principles of the faith, also speaks into this. Question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to joy him forever. Now notice that it doesn't say chief ends of man. This is because glorifying God and enjoying him forever are one in the same. The two cannot be separated. Jesus also speaks to this in John 15, verses 10 through 11. If you keep my commandment, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the, my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be in full. Our joy is in full as we obey God and seek him. As John Piper puts it, his glory and our gladness are not in competition. Blaise Pascal, who was a mathematician and philosopher from the 1600s, you might have heard about him in your math classes, but he said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator. Because we are made by God and for God, to truly live with the right purpose is to bring glory to God and to find all of our delight in him. Pastor and author David Platt says, the call to turn away from this world is not a call to turn to a dull and dreary life where you miss out on all the fun. It's a call to turn to superior satisfaction, joy, pleasure, and security in God. And that is what it means to truly live, to live with the right purpose, to glorify God and find joy in him. Now I'd love to ask you, are you focusing on the cares of this world that are passing away? Are you looking to them to fill you? Are you aimlessly drifting through life? Are you living with the wrong purpose? So all men and women, including you and me, have succumbed to the ways of this world. Every day we fall into being concerned with the here and now. We don't live with the right purpose, but live for the concerns of the world that are passing away. But there came one man in all of history who did not succumb to the ways of the world who resisted the seduction of this world every single moment. He always obeyed God the Father and always found ultimate joy in him. His purpose was to do the will of God. In John 19.10, Jesus describes how he lives out his purpose to do the will of God. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus, being God in the flesh, came to earth and was the only one who never did any wrong. His heart and actions were always blameless and pure. Because God is holy, mankind is separated from him because of our sin. Although we deserve to be punished, Jesus was the only one that could take this punishment for us. He did this by dying on the cross. And as Jesus stood on the night before he would die on the cross, you know what he said? Not my will, but your will be done. 
Jesus is the perfect example of living with the right purpose, doing the will of the Father. And although we fall short of living with the right purpose and we're concerned with the cares of this world, the good news of the gospel says that we can repent of our sins and trust in Jesus. Because of his great love for us, he desires to restore us to our original purpose, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Well, this is Jesus, and he lived his life with true purpose and always lived with the end in mind. Everything he thought, said, and did pointed to what he knew laid ahead. And what is it that lies ahead? Well, tonight, we're going to really get our diggage on in Revelation 19 and see what lies ahead. So please open up to Revelation 19. Um, It'll also be behind me if you don't have a Bible with you. So I'd love to tell you a little bit about the background of Revelation 19, well, of Revelation in general. Um, So Revelation is the very last book in the Bible, and it's written by John through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so John the Apostle is on a deserted island. Uh, It kind of sounds like a nice place, but this island was actually a prison for John. He was exiled there by the anti-Christian Roman emperor, um, so he wouldn't have a chance to tell anyone else about Jesus. And so what we read in Revelation is the vision that God gave to John. And this is what the future looks like, what Jesus lived in light of. So as we take a look at Revelation 19, we see three sections that I have named the following. The first is the wipeout, the second, the wedding, and third, the war. Sounds like we have some interesting, interesting things ahead, don't we? So first, let's take a look at the wipeout by reading Revelation 19, starting in verse 1. After this, I, who is John, heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So this great multitude in heaven that the Bible says no one could number is filled with people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They all stand before Jesus on the throne giving praise to him. They're worshiping him because he accomplished his mission of what he set out to do by dying on the cross to save sinners. Let's continue in verse 2. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So in verse 2, a prostitute is mentioned. There are a number of different views about who this prostitute is, but what can generally be agreed upon is that this prostitute is a metaphor, and she represents the the world and its concerns. So it doesn't just say that she's a prostitute, but it says that she's a great one. So she's really good at what she does. And like this prostitute, the world allures us and is attractive. It tempts to entice us daily, It gives us false hopes of satisfaction, comfort, and security. And the crowds are also celebrating that Jesus has judged this great prostitute and will restore the world to wholeness and to remove sin from it. Reading on in verse 3, we see the eternal destiny of this prostitute, which represents the cares of the world. 
Once more, they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This prostitute is forever destroyed, and like her, the cares of this world will soon pass away. The world will be here, and then poof, gone. Your smartphone, gone. Your resume, gone. Your bank account, gone. What people think of you, gone. So this section is called the wipeout because one day all things of this world are going to be destroyed. And we see that this is true because of what happens to the great prostitute who is a symbol of the sinful world and its temporary cares. C.T. Studd, a missionary from the 1800s said, only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. As we've heard before in previous weeks, all things will pass away except for three things. God, his word, and the souls of people. Does the way in which you live show that you believe this to be true? Well, the next section in Revelation 19 that we will look at is the wedding. And you might be thinking, a wedding? These are the end times. Who in the world is going to get married knowing that the world is over? Well, let's continue reading and see. Let's start in verse 6 now of chapter 19. Then I, John, heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was, with, was given her to wear. And the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So as we can see, this wedding is not one of two people dressed up, a man in a tux, a woman in a white dress getting ready to walk down the aisle. But you see, throughout scripture, the Bible uses marriage as a picture to symbolize Jesus' relationship with his church. Jesus is the groom, and the church, or anyone who has put their faith in Jesus, is the bride. Every wedding on this earth is meant to be a reflection of this wedding, the ultimate wedding. And so before we move on to look more at this heavenly wedding, in Revelation 19, let's take a look at an earthly wedding that you all are familiar with. So let's watch something. Prince William will marry Catherine Middleton at this center of Christian worship for a thousand years, Westminster Abbey. beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. 
Well, maybe you are one of the two billion people who watched the royal wedding in 2011. Many tuned in from the United States, waking up in the wee hours of the night. Can I get a raise of hands? Did anyone watch it? Okay, several of you. Well, the anticipation for this event was so widespread. People nearly lost their minds because they were so excited about this. Thousands of t-shirts, cups, posters, and figurines of William and Kate were purchased all around the world. Even the astronauts living on the International Space Station caught the royal fever as they sent a message to the bride and groom from space. And as elegant of a wedding as William and Kate had, I can't even imagine what the wedding will look like in Revelation 19. This heavenly wedding is called the wedding of the lamb because Jesus is the lamb who is slain. He pledged himself to us by sacrificing himself on the cross in order to rescue us from the grip of the devil in this world. All who have called Jesus Savior and Lord of their life will be at this wedding from ages past, from this age, and ages to come, assuming that there will be ages to come before this wedding happens. And like the royal wedding, which had people fly in from all over the world, those at this wedding will literally be from every tribe, tongue, and nation. How awesome is that? And did you see all the crowds and the noise that was being made in celebration of William and Kate? That's nothing compared to the multitudes who will be praising God at the wedding of the Lamb. They won't be rejoicing that two people will spend their earthly lives together, but instead that Jesus is the ultimate groom who makes a way for people to spend eternity with him. Well, the third part of Revelation that we will be looking at is the war. So yes, we just had a wedding, but now it's time for war. Let's continue reading in verse 11 now of chapter 19. Let's see what else John describes as uh, we look at these visions of the end times. Starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus, the King, is here. And he judges and makes war against the devil and sin in this world. Now, this also reminds me of a quote from a contemporary theologian. Remember, only God can judge you. Miley Cyrus said this in her hit, We Won't Stop. (laughs) Now, I do think Miley's point that she's trying to make is to not worry about what other people have to say about you. But she is kind of right about something. 
she is right in saying that only God can judge the deepest parts of your soul, which determines your eternal destiny. The fact that only God can judge us should terrify Miley, though. I mean, look at him. He rides the white horse with crowns on his head, symbolizing victory and supremacy. A holy and perfect king who is coming to make all things right. In verse 11, it says Jesus is the one called faithful and true. This means that he is a keeper of the promises that he's made, including his promises of judgment against sin and evil in those who oppose him. Verse 12 says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. Isn't that crazy? Author and pastor Charles Spurgeon speaks into this. Why are they like flames of fire? Why first, to discern the secrets of all hearts. There are no secrets here that Christ does not see, that he does not scan as easily as a man reads a page in a book. His eyes are like a flame of fire to read us through and through and to know us in our inmost soul. Not one of our sins will go unlooked by the great judge, Jesus. He is good and right to make war against sin. If he did not, then he truly wouldn't be God because God cannot let sin go unpunished. Let's continue reading in verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh." So to put it plainly, for those of you who are not trusting in Jesus, you will have to pay the punishment for your sin. You will be on the devil's side joining him in his eternal destination, which is hell, the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. But I implore you, trust in Jesus. Trust him right now that he satisfied God's wrath by his death on the cross, that he waits and pleads that you come trust him now, and in him you will find what your soul is looking for. Surrender your life to him, that he is the victorious, loving, and gracious king that desires a relationship with you, knowing everything about your heart. And for the Christian, those who have already trusted Christ, we can approach God in boldness. This victorious king who we just read about, you can approach him in boldness. There is no reason to be fearful of God's thoughts or actions toward you. He is gentle and loving and has no anger or wrath because it was all poured out on Jesus when he died on the cross. When God looks at us, He no longer sees our sin, 
but he sees Jesus' perfection. He waits for all to trust him and for us to join him in his victory over the world that we just read about. So on whose side will you be? You are either on Jesus' side or Satan's. There is no in-between. Trust in Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11 say, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, every person will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Even the person who denounces God's existence will one day be on his or her knees confessing Jesus as Lord. The person who trusts in Jesus in this life will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to their deepest satisfaction and delight. But the person who does not know Christ now will nonetheless confess Christ as Lord to their deepest agony and regret. Let us live for the glory of God so that people now, even tonight, would confess Jesus as Lord. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. Oscar Wilde, who I mentioned at the beginning of this message, said to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist. That is all. You see, Wilde ended his marriage by having an affair and leaving his wife. He abandoned his children and ended up being imprisoned. After being released from prison, he fled to France with no money in his pockets and died an early death. But isn't, oh, it is believed, I have important information, it is believed that he put his faith in Christ on his deathbed. But isn't that sad that he waited until the end of his life to make that decision? He missed out on a lifetime of knowing Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. You see, he knew that life was about purpose, but yet he didn't have the right purpose. He missed it. It's not just enough to know these things, to have head knowledge, but living so that our lives count requires action. And don't walk away forgetting what you've learned the last seven weeks of this talk series. Are there any changes you need to make in order to live for eternity in your everyday life? Changes in what you value? Changes in how you spend your time? Changes in your priority? Don't you want your life to count? Don't you want to live for the line and not the dot? Jesus is so worth it. In Revelation 21, 1 through 4, 
John describes a beautiful picture that awaits us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And as I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. For those who trust Christ, or maybe even trusted him tonight, live in a way that reflects what we will do forever, glorifying God and enjoying him forever. That's what we'll do. That's what I just talked about in Revelation 21. We do not have time to be wasting our lives. By God's grace and through the power of his spirit, live so that your life counts. Live in a way that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God and enjoy him. This is how to live so that your life will count. Would you pray with me as I ask the Lord to help make this true for us? Well, Lord, oh God, we beg you, would you allow us to live in a way in which our lives will count? Will we find joy as we obey you? God, that's what we are made to do. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is that conquering king that we just read about. And one day, for those who trust him, you'll spend eternity with him. And Lord, would all hear, know, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, we ask. We're so thankful for your son. We love you, Jesus. We're so grateful. And it's in your name. Amen. Amen.